Hello, beautiful people of God. It's a wonderful day today. Gorgeous, gorgeous uh, fall day here. And uh, some of you might be at home. You might be on your way to work. You never know where you might be. Um, I've been very encouraged to hear some of you make references to some of the things that we are talking about in the uh, these podcasts. So, and more and more, I'm already starting to miss Bill. Uh, Heath, I'm glad to hear you listen to these too. And um, so I hope they're a great blessing to you guys. So whether you're in your car driving down the road or sitting around the table with your family, um, Pastor Mark loves you and wants so much to be an encouragement to you. You know, it's a great responsibility when God gives you the duty of shepherding his people. I know you guys belong to him. And so I want to always direct you to him. Now in the month of October, it's really been an enjoyable time for me to get to study the details of the great reformation again. And I know if I keep doing this, eventually, uh, I'll know everything. (laughs) Well, just kidding. I'll know a lot. And, uh, the more I learn, uh, the more I can see the invisible hand of God made visible in the world. In fact, right now, I'm in the midst of preparing for next Sunday's uh, sermon, and I'm going to be talking about um, the many moving parts that made Reformation possible. And, um, you know, it wasn't just these men and their courage. There there have been other men with courage in, in time, but there were a unique set of circumstances that had come to be that made all of these things come together. Someone said years ago that uh, success is when preparation meets opportunity. Those two things come together. And so by God's providence, the preparation and everything came together, kind of like at the time of Christ. If you haven't really studied the life of Christ and you haven't seen how God prepared the world for it, um, then you're missing something. You know, the whole world had, the whole known world at the time of Christ, um, it took a long time for this to happen, but they became, they were under one government, the Roman Empire. They were speaking one language. The language was Greek. Um, You could travel throughout the realm peacefully. They called it the Roman peace, Pax Romanus. And of course, there were wars during this time, but as a rule, it was a pretty peaceful time. And so people traveled around. And and so it created this opportunity. Not only did that, but they had roads too. And, um, you know, you might might not really understand the importance of roads uh, like I actually get to. When I go to Myanmar, you know, we could drive to where we want to go and we could be there in a few hours. Um, but if you don't have the right kind of roads, it's hard to get places. And instead it takes us two days to get there. So imagine during the time of Christ, you know, even roads, even for walking are important. Those roads provided a lot of, uh, you know, a a lot of opportunity. So anyway, so we're going to talk about what were the things that were there you know, before the reformation, uh, to make it come to pass. And so we're going to talk about the printing press. We're going to talk about 
uh, a distribution for books. We're going to talk about all of that, but we're not into that yet. So far, what we've been doing and what today's podcast is about, it's about a recap of what we've been talking about. First week, we talked about Athanasius. Second week, we talked about Augustine. And the third week, we talked about Jesus, the great reformer. So in week, uh, the next week, we're going to talk about the, the many moving parts of the Reformation and see how people who are inventors, mechanics, uh, book writers, uh, salesmen, um, distri- distributors, uh, truckers, you know, shipping people, all of them played a role in the Great Reformation. And, you know, God, God uses all of these many different gifts to accomplish his holy will. So in the first week, we talked about uh, Athanasius. And if you remember, Athanasius and Alexand- and Augustine, who was from uh, Alexandria, both of them were Africans. And, you know, for my family in particular, this is a little bit exciting. We have a son whose name is Valiant Augustine, and he's an African too. Now he's from South Carolina, but basically his genetics are African. He is an African-American boy. And so, you know, we're wanting to explore maybe what part of Africa, that kind of thing. But a lot of people don't think of Christianity being an African uh, religion. Um but really, Christianity came to Africa, of course, you know, a whole lot before it ever came to America. America didn't exist. Uh, Christianity came to Africa in just the, the few years uh, after Christ. The first re- record we have of this is in the book of Acts chapter 8, where the Ethiopian eunuch speaks to Philip, and Philip is explaining to him a passage from Isaiah 53. Um, I'm actually driving down the road right now with uh, Liam in the car with me. We're on the way to pick up a prescription that Andrea needs. And um, so if you hear him in the background, that's him. And if my muffler's a little loud, I, I hope to get that fixed too. But anyway, so um, Philip encounters the Ethiopian eunuch um, in Samaria. If you remember, Jesus had told them to wait in Jerusalem till they received the power of the Holy Spirit and they would be witnesses in in these places, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. So by the time um, most people believe these were the deacons in Acts chapter 6 who were, um, they were the men full of faith and the Holy Ghost who had been called by God to serve the widows um, of the church and Philip was one of them. Remember, Stephen uh, preaches his sermon in Acts chapter 7. And there's there's Philip and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas. And there's seven of them. And they get chosen uh, to be deacons. Well, one of them is Philip. And, and the church in Acts chapter 8 is scattered, uh, including these deacons. And Philip goes preaching the word. He encounters this Ethiopian eunuch. Well, where's Ethiopia? It's Africa. So this Ethiopian eunuch works for Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, doing something in finance. Um, Philip converts him, baptizes him, and he goes on his way. And he brings the gospel back to Ethiopia. And we, there are other church history documents that uh, help us understand that not only did um, Philip go, 
but uh, Mark, the gospel writer, he went. He is considered to be the founder of the Coptic Church as the first apostle to visit there. And then there was Simon uh, that also went there. These men were all martyred in Africa for their for their faith. Now, these things aren't recorded in the Bible, but they are noted in church history, so you can read about them, but we can't you know, bank on the authority of them being factual like we do scripture. But anyway, that was the beginning of the gospel in Africa. So remember, the gospel came to Africa. Christianity came to Africa uh, in just a few years after Christ at when Philip, after Philip, ministered to the Ethiopian eunuch. So Christianity had developed in that region, and it began to produce these incredible people. And one of them that we talked about in week one of the Reformation was Athanasius. And Athanasius was... Uh, I really like his name, and I've been trying to get someone to name their kid after him. <laughs> but Athanasius um, was a little boy, and he's he's um, in the city of Alexandria, which is in the northern part of Egypt, right on the Mediterranean Sea. They're in a port there, that city that has the lighthouse of Alexandria, the library of Alexandria, all that kind of stuff, these famous wonders of the world. And um, the Bishop of Alexandria is entertaining some guests at his home on the Lord's Day after Lord's Day worship. And he's doing something and he's looking out the window at the beautiful bay there in Alexandria and he sees uh, some kids playing in the water. And they're playing on the edge of the water and he notices that they are baptizing. Some, you know, One of them is baptizing some of the other ones and he's wondering, are they mocking? You know, what, you know, are they, are they mocking this precious sacrament of the church? And so he goes and sends for them and brings them in, thinking he's going to reprove them. And the kids, or at least one of the kids, turned on and said, hey, you know, this wasn't anybody's fault. This was his fault. It's the bishop's fault. Well, the bishop himself is thinking he's, you know, what do you mean the bishop? And they're like, they point at this young boy who I believe is about eight years old. And they say, oh yeah, he's the bishop. We elected him bishop and he's the one baptizing. Well, that young boy was Athanasius. And when the bishop of Alexandria interviewed him and asked him about how he went about baptizing him, he, he, he was very impressed. Hey, Lilo. He was very impressed that uh, Athanasius had done it according to their book of order that he had literally used the right phrases and said the right things when baptizing and, and, and really, really did it accurately. So he took an interest in him and talked to his parents and wanted him to be educated and dedicated to the service of the church. And that's how Athanasius began, you know, his ministerial, um, work and he ends up going and becoming uh, he went to school and he come be, ends up becoming the secretary for the bishop of Alexandria and becoming a good friend and ends up also becoming a deacon in the church it was during this time as a deacon in the church that Athanasius attended the Nicene council with uh, the bishop of Alexandria and while there, they were encountering the heresy of a man named Arius, and 
the heresy ends up being called Arianism, and it was basically a denial of the divinity of Christ, that he was a created being and he was not uh, he was not equal with God, that he was less than God and he was after God, you know. And there was even this saying, there was a time when the son was not, and he, you know, was promoting this, this heresy in the church. Well, it wasn't just like one guy who had an idea. This doctrine uh, permeated the church to such an extent um, that entire peoples that have been converted to Christianity around the Christian realm, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people, um, I don't know how many, but a whole lot of them. I mean, if you, when you hear about these people sacking Rome later, the Goths and the Visigoths and the Vandals, many people think these are just pagan peoples attacking uh, Rome, but they're not. They are Aryan Christians uh, who are heretics, and they come in and attack Rome later. But anyway, that's another part of the story. So anyway, so he goes to the Council of Nicaea and actually helps with the development of the doctrine that refutes Arianism. And at the Council of Nicaea, the doctrine of the Trinity is affirmed. And um, it, it seems that, you know, Athanasius has won the day, uh, even though he's not even at this time in the ministry, uh, other than being a deacon, he's not a bishop at the time. Um, he will, though, end up battling this his entire life. And he lives in exile and in caves and all kinds of stuff. And, and so what we talked about in this, this first week was that this boy became a man and became a pillar of the church. And the work that he did continues to be a pillar in the church. Athanasius was used, uh, his, he used to, um, in exile, he actually sent out these letters and, and helping them understand when, um, they should should celebrate the resurrection of the Lord, and when Passover was going to be, and all kinds of stuff. It took a, a calculation that not many people could do at the time. And during one of these letters, he listed out the different um, letters and epistles and books of the New Testament, and that list has remained the list that defines the canon of the New Testament Scripture. So, the doctrine of the Trinity and um, the list of the of the books that get included in the New Testament are tied to Athanasius. That's some pretty huge things, and so knowing who he is 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 uh, wonderfully important. And he was just a young boy baptizing on the seashore. In fact, he baptized some of those pagan kids, and the bishop actually said that these baptisms should be considered valid uh, because he did them the right way. But God uses children. And even in the very beginning of their lives, when they're at play, uh, it matters what they do. And so we should encourage our kids to play. I don't know that they should be playing at baptizing, but we should listen and find out what they're doing before we're ready to condemn them. All right. Well, me and Liam had to take a little break there, but we're back. We got uh, Mama's prescription, and now we're going to get a little gas, and he might even get a little treat. Um on the way home. Now, don't tell any of the other kids, okay? But uh, anyway, here's where we left off. We were talking about Athanasius. And uh, one of the things, too, that he did that connects to the next week that we talked about is he ended up spending some time as a young man with 
um, a man who ended up calling Saint Anthony of the Desert. And Saint Anthony of the Desert was a hermit who lived in a cave and um, something about his life deeply touched Athanasius and so he ends up writing the story of his life and learning a lot from him so later during his life when he had spent uh, of of the many years of his ministry which were more than 60 15 of those years he spent in exile one time spending several months uh, in the tomb of his father who, you know, had died. The family crypt. So, um, and writing this touched many, many people. In fact, it's one of his most pop, it was his most popular thing he wrote during his life. Before the Arian controversy, though, he did write something on the Incarnation and it is now his most widely read thing that he ever wrote. And it really helped Christianity, as we know it, um, define the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, so Athanasius made great contributions to the kingdom of God and is definitely one of the great pillars of the church. What we learn from him is that even those that are little children playing that one day they can grow up to be great pillars of the church and you know his faithfulness has been inspiring people for you know 1700 years he was born I believe in right around the 300s like maybe 308 if my memory serves me but you can look it up you can even read about that on Wikipedia if necessary but the following week of studying these great these pillars of the faith we talked about Augustine. Um, he wasn't Saint Augustine. He was just Augustine. In fact, he was anything but saintly for many years of his life. Um, his father was a pagan, and his mother was a Christian. His mother's name was Monica, and he lived in modern-day uh, Algeria, which is further to the west in Africa, a little bit deeper in Africa than Alexandria. And he basically lived a hedonistic life. He went to school. He became uh, very, very skilled in Latin rhetoric. He actually abandoned Christianity, broke his mother's heart, and became a follower of this religion called Manichaeism. And one of the main things that we came to in studying his life is that he became the father of the doctrines of grace. And we thought it was so funny that a man without a godly father who had a pagan father uh, and who, you know, that he would become the father of the doctrines of grace that would be used, you know, in the Great Reformation by the reformers like Wycliffe, Tyndale, Luther, Calvin, all of them. They were people that looked back to him. Luther himself was an Augustinian monk. Uh, the teacher in Paris that uh, William Farrell, the great compatriot of John Calvin, was taught by Jacques Lefebvre de Stepes. He was Augustinian in his theology, and so on and so forth. You can't read about any of the reformers without hearing the influence of 
St. Augustine in their work. But this guy started out his life really rough. He, you know, uh, broke his mother's heart by going after this religion of Manichaeism. It's kind of like dualism or Taoism. I'm not an expert on that religion, but it's basically good and evil in the universe and very, very philosophical religion. Now, what helped him, though, is that he, in his studies, studied Plato and Aristotle. And he began to learn the power of reason. And, of course, reason isn't everything, but God wants us to worship him in our hearts, uh, in our soul, right, and our mind. And so he began to learn that some things just don't make sense. They don't add up, you know. And so he learned about logic, you know, if this, then this. And his study of logic and and Neoplatonism and and things actually that are probably more heady than you want to hear about or even that I could properly explain led him out of Manichaeism. But he was almost 30 years old. He had lived with a woman who uh, they refer to as his lover. He had actually sired a child out of wedlock. And this was all very, very painful and disconcerting for his mother, Monica. Now, Augustine's father does, as a pagan, he does convert at his deathbed. And, of course, um, Augustine uh, lives a life that vindicates his mother's faith and the fact that he comes to the knowledge of Christ. But it was very interesting how it all happened. He became a friend. Uh, He got a job in Milan, Italy and became friends of a man named the Bishop of, well, which history calls the Bishop of Milan. I'm sure he had some other name, but the Bishop of Milan. And he was in Milan, Italy, and he was a um, well-known for being a gentle, kind, loving patriarch uh, of that town. And, you know, that city was an extraordinary, extraordinarily influential city of its time. And so, you know, being the bishop of that city, well, so Augustine gets a job there, which is supposed to be like the greatest job of the time. You know, he's the greatest uh, rhetoric and Latin teacher in the world, or he's, you know, supposed to be great. And so the bishop of Milan, being a Christian, uh, also was a man who studied Latin and was great at debate and rhetoric and and had supposedly achieved the best debater uh, in the world. He was incredible at the, you know. So Augustine came to hear him. And of course, what is he going to be debating about? He's going to debating about the logic of Christianity and about the reasonableness of God and his word. So Augustine at the time could care less about the subject matter, but he was listening to his skill at forming an argument and beating arguments against him and while he was there he developed a relationship Augustine later said that Augustine um, was a friend and 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 treated him like a loving father before he ever knew him as a father in the faith now one of the interesting ties to uh, Athanasius and Augustine here is that it was upon the hearing of the story of Saint Anthony of the desert this the first thing that um, Saint well, he wasn't saying, but Athanasius wrote years ago. When he, after he heard that read, and some things went on, and of course he had this relationship now with the Bishop of Milan, 
Augustine converts to Christianity and, you know, from that point on forward for the rest of his life was, you know, militant for the kingdom of God. And he wrote this incredible, incredible book. Anybody could read. It's not real heady. It's not impossible. It's not filled with philosophy. It's just beautiful. It is called the Confessions or the Confessions of St. Augustine. And it is a 20,000 word prayer to God of thanksgiving for his grace and his mercy upon him. And uh, I would certainly, certainly encourage you to read it. There's another book called The City of God, which he wrote, which most people would consider that to be what is called like his magnum opus, his, his great work that he did. And it basically is showing how the kingdom of God uh, will overcome the kingdom of man. And he gives what a lot of people who believe in post-millennialism see is a vision of the glorious Christ and how he will put all of his enemies under his feet. And so these are the, some of the things we got from Augustine. He was alive. He wasn't really much of a saint for many years, but, but God indeed had mercy on him and, and, uh, you know, and used him anyway. One of the interesting facts is as he was leaving Milan to go back home, his mother died and, and, and uh, well, I didn't throw in here that the Bishop of Milan actually baptized him and his son, even though his son was considered illegitimate. Um, he baptized him and his illegitimate son. Um, and they were going to all go back, you know, home to, uh, you know, to Northern Africa together. And uh, when the, when they got, before they, they left, his mother died. And when he got home, his son died. And these tragedies also helped draw him closer to Christ and help him understand the temporal nature of life and and hate the death that comes from sin and to war wage war against it. He decided to live a celibate life, uh, a monastic life, a life more like Saint Anthony of the Desert, and more, you know, I'm I'm, I'm going to sell what I have. He, his parents had money; he sold it, and he basically lived like. Uh, you know, like a priest, uh, the rest of his life and just dedicated himself. Uh, one of the final parts of the chapter of his life that is kind of interesting to me is that one of these groups of these Aryan heretics came and besieged the city where he was, uh, near the time, you know, when, when he was pretty old and, um, they end up feigning that they were leaving and I believe they were the Vandals. They were called the Vandals. And they they uh, they leave town, and they come back. And they come back, and they burn the entire city. But one thing doesn't get burned, and it is the church where Augustine has served and lived. And all of his writings are preserved, and they were preserved by God, of course, for us today. Um, I hope I can remember this famous quote by him uh, as I as I end this little podcast about recapping these two reformers and kind of moving us forward to you know of course Jesus the great reformer who was always reforming and who was reforming in very specific ways. I'll do another one another podcast on that before I do also a recap of the one I'm working on next week. But he said you know. We have been, he said, for thee have we been made, and until we find our rest in you, we have no peace. But in you, when we have found uh, 
you, then we have peace. And really, we have been made for God. And outside of him, there is no peace. So let's thanks, you know, give thanks to God for these men. And may God use us to bring peace in the lives of others and help them to find that peace in Christ. As we study the Great Reformation, may we be reminded to always be reforming, always be wanting to be uh, going back to the Word of God, back to our love for Christ, the living Word, and give that to others. May the Lord bless you guys today. I hope that you have a good day at work, or I hope you have a nice time if you're there with your family. Just want you to know that I love you. I'm so thankful that God has given me this great blessing to be able to serve you uh, as your pastor and shepherd. And and I know that I'm just an under-shepherd, that he's the great shepherd. And I pray that you can forgive my faults and failures and weaknesses and just um, love me and give me the grace that God has given you. So with that, I'll leave you today. Bye now.